1: Hello and welcome back to Godpod. We are inching ever nearer to number 100. We're not quite there yet. But that's an awful lot of talking, isn't it, really?
0: Shocking amounts of talking.
1: There's a, a lot of awful talking, yes. <laughs> so when you think of it, every Godpod takes around about half an hour or slightly more. We've done nearly 100. Could we ask Keith to count the number of words? Oh, I, don't, I, I
0: think he has better things to do with <laughs> own, don't you?
1: That is about 50 hours of non-stop talking.
0: But it's nice that we've never got bored with either no, talking to each other or talking about theology. We um, haven't, no. <laughs> <laughs> other people have a switch they can press. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly, that's right. Yeah. So we'll keep on going for quite a bit longer. But Anyway, today we have, um, uh, as always, some fascinating questions that have come in. And um, we will start with one from uh, John Sharp. I don't know where John Sharp comes from. He doesn't tell us. But John's question is this. He says, thanks for the God Pods. He obviously has listened to a few in his time. Well done, John. <laughs> <laughs> he has a, uh, a couple of questions. It's the first one we'll um, have a go at. We may drift on to the second one as well. Um so you hear people say he he asks, uh, for example, in the assisted dying debate. That's here in the UK. We've just had a debate over assisted dying in
2: Parliament. Not assisted dying in Parliament. We had a debate in Parliament <laughs> about assisted dying. Thank you. Although that. I can imagine the temptation is strong at some point. Thank you for
1: that clarification, Michael. Um, uh, so let's start again. <laughs> you hear people say that there are people of faith who are grouped together and whose arguments needed to be treated differently from the rest, presumably the rational ones. My feeling is that we all have a set of beliefs which are more or less rational, and so the arguments of people of faith are at least on an equal par with others. What do you think? Is there any um, validity in the idea of what do we think of that sort of tendency in our culture, talking about people of faith? So Christians, Muslims, Hindus, everybody else, and and, and religious people are people of faith. What do you think of that?
0: I think I mean there there are certain things that people who believe in um uh something that is bigger than their own Um, desires and their own free wills there are certain kinds of things that people of faith in that sense do have in common and one of them and they and they tend to come out uh, in areas like um, beginning and end of life issues because uh, because people of faith believe that life believe that life is a gift um, and uh, and that we are given some responsibility for it in that sense Um, so I think there are places where it does make sense to talk about people of faith I'm, I, without necessarily suggesting that people of faith, that their arguments need to be treated differently from anybody else's, um, but that they have a rational argument that, um, that needs to be considered in making these decisions.
2: And I think the reason it tends to surface in debates like this is because um, in the end one's talking about value in these debates more perhaps more obviously than in many other debates like the economy or whatever, where that, that it's relevant but not so close to the surface. And in the end, value is a personal thing. You can only be valued by a, by a person. You can't be valued by a force, an impersonal force. Um, and therefore, those people of faith, and not all people of faith believe this, but many do, that there is a person at the heart of uh, existence. Um, and that that person values us, that gives us a particular ground for believing in the value of every individual human being and creation as a whole, but particularly of of human beings, um, which I think puts ground under the feet of our deepest intuitions and um, and best acts, really. Um, So that, that... is an element that needs to be remembered in the equation. We are not unvaluable things that you can dispose of for convenience sake. Uh, though I think there's a, there's a deep value there that which we need to take account on. Now, that doesn't uh, determine the argument in advance. It doesn't tell you exactly which way it should go, but it does shape the debate, I think, quite importantly.
1: I said, I, I tend to react maybe a bit like john slightly against the phrase people of faith because of what it seems to imply about those who are not in the people of faith in other words it implies those of us who are kind of um, you know christians muslims people who have a religious commitment um we have faith and all the others have reason or they don't have faith or there is something kind of quite different about their way of coming to knowledge than than ours as, as religious people. And, I, and it seems to me that all, all, you know, this is a point, I guess, that say, Anselm and Aquinas would, and um, and Augustine would make, you know, that, that in some ways all, all knowledge is based on some element of some exercise of faith. There are certain things which you have to assume to be the case before you can think about anything at all. And um, it often strikes me that you know secular humanists or atheists might sometimes call us people of faith, and that they're not people of faith. But it strikes me that the position that there is no god is itself a, a, an article of faith. The uh, the assumption it's pretty
2: unprovable,
1: pretty unprovable, exactly. Um, the, uh, the you know the, the the assumption that the scientific method is regular and the world is orderly enough to yield consistent results through science, that in a sense is a, a kind of article of faith um, which enables you to do some good thinking from that point onwards so in other words it's it, there isn't such a thing as you know people of reason and people of faith we are all people of faith and reason we all have a certain set of assumptions uh, many of which we can't ultimately prove but we accept by faith and on the basis of those assumptions we then reason and that's true for religious people it's true for non-religious people and um, which is why i slump, sometimes like the object to the the just the, the language uh, you know your people of faith because it seems to imply you know we have a sort of lesser or um you know incomplete way of, of thinking
0: yes that's very helpful graham because then then it requires all of us um in a debate like this to Dying debate to explain our reasoning, Um, and then you begin to see real differences, don't you? I mean, for example, in this debate, a lot of uh, the reasoning seems to come from the assumption that that we are utterly autonomous people and we should have total control over uh, over our lives, Um, and um, and and that our worth is measured. in, in how much we cost the state, how much we contribute to the state, uh, that it's, it's, it's measured economically in some way or another.
2: Those frightening maths textbooks produced in Germany in the 30s, in the build-up uh, to the Nazi period, which asked ordinary mathematics questions of ordinary s- school children, saying things like... Uh, It costs X amount of marks to keep uh, an old person in a home. How many new flats could we provide for young couples if we didn't have to do that? Which is trying to get people to think. It was preparing for the final solution, really, because it was trying to get people to think of people as units of productivity. Uh, and, And that's something that... People of faith would probably want to, not just people of faith, of faith in the terms of the uh, the phrase, uh, would probably want to object to. But I I do I do understand where you're coming from on that Graham, and I think you you can't prove your starting point. You choose your starting point, and that's as true for atheists as it is for Christians, as it is for Buddhists or whatever. And, and I think the question is what gives you the most fertile view um and that's where the debate needs to happen i think the other objection i have to people of faith is it suggests that people of faith different religious views are basically saying the same thing which i don't think is also true i mean most buddhists are not theists most Buddhists don't believe that there is a person behind the universe. That's rather different.
0: But on the other hand, um, I, I have spent a, a day in the company of um, a group of Christian and Muslim women in which we didn't talk about what we believed at all. We talked about what it's like trying to bring up children, for example, in a, a materialistic, secularist society, um, what it's like trying to um, pass on uh, values in a way that isn't judgmental of those who don't share those values. Uh, and th- we did have a huge amount in common. I um, agree
2: with that, but wouldn't wouldn't you also have something in common with um, an atheist trying to bring up children in uh, Calvin's Geneva or something? Yes,
0: yes, very likely. <laughs> 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 Mind <should I>? boggles. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't
1: give much of their chances for very long. <laughs> <laughs> well, quite. Yeah. Um, I can see what you mean, Jane. I mean, there are things, I mean, there, there are probably greater commonalities between, say, Christians and Muslims and Hindus because of their um, there's convictions about the nature of the world, the fact that they believe there is something beyond just what you can see. And so, therefore, there's a kind of, uh, you know, we are kind of cousins, if you like, Um which may be slightly you know different from the the secular humanist or the atheist but i think i I still want us to say that you know all of us muslim hindu secular humanist christian atheist whatever it is we all have our assumptions which we which we make and then we build our rationality and our reasoning on that um and therefore to make this slightly arbitrary selection between you know you know people of faith and people without faith isn't quite right excuse me you get at that you get at your assumptions it's a bit like you know when you're I remember when our kids were small, they had this habit of always asking the question, why? You know, you say something and they say why? And then you say, well, it's because of this. And they say, well, why? And you, and they keep on asking the question, why? Until you get to the point, well, I don't know why, so it just is. Just, <laughs> just, 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 just because, you know. And that's a kind of quite a good process of reasoning because, you know, asking the question, keeping on question, why? Why do you think that? Why is that the case? Why is that? And you get to a point where you can't really answer that question. You just say, well, just just that's the way it is and that's when you get to your basic assumptions your basic axioms your 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 positions of faith and everybody has them
0: and what yeah what's really helpful about that in something like the assisted dying debate it, it would be really helpful if um everybody was asked to state their place of faith what is your sort of bottom line on this where are you starting from and and actually by saying people of faith make this irrational a decision assumption um the people who would say they're not people of faith therefore never have to describe their starting yeah, exactly. point do they that's so, right yeah. it's, all, it's
1: assumed that that's, yeah. that's the way things that's are that's the rational yeah yeah well that reads us on to another uh, again very interesting question from um which is kind of related i think
0: um, <laughs> you can do it graham <laughs> i'll
1: have a go here we go uh, this is from sam dews which um um it may initially appear completely randomly different <laughs> especially about hypnosis and hypnotists
0: okay yes where so are you going with this
2: one okay
1: room? well wait and see wait and see <laughs> um because basically his, his question is that there are there are hypnotists around magicians that you see on tv and everybody else who um uh, use power of suggestion and cognitive techniques to get people to do and see strange things, which you know from the outside you can see aren't really there. And uh, he talks about how seeing a hypnotist show once, where in one session, he had someone speaking in the equivalent of tongues, falling over and tasting water, thinking it was wine. So, in a sense, I guess the link here is a little bit about you know how uh, a sort of secular view of the world maps onto uh, kind of Christian religious views of the world. So in other words, if it seems possible that magicians and hypnotists can somehow reproduce uh, supposedly religious experience or even miracles, um, how do we know that's not what Jesus was doing or the saints were doing when they performed miracles? Uh, Is it just that? Um what we think of as religious experience is really just ordinary experience um you know conjured up by some special cognitive technique which was used by Jesus or whatever miracle workers really are just kind of hyped up hypnotists and so on so there's the question really um what about religious experience uh can they be explained as simply natural reactions to simple psychological techniques um prayer? Um, is that simply, again, a psychological technique where we look for results that confirm our prior, prior beliefs? Uh, when anyone, or conversion even, is conversion just a, a sort of psychological technique whereby um, uh, cognitive processes come into play that make them more susceptible to believing in God than they would otherwise be?
2: Well, it's a very good question, and a whole set of questions, really. <clears throat> I think the first... Point I want to take a step backwards and, and say as the first point that uh God gives us freedom. We were talking about that in, in the last God pod. Um, he doesn't choose to hypnotize us. Presumably he could uh hypnotize us the way a hypnotist does, so that we always choose what He wants us to choose. He manipulates us. He forces us to do what he wants and even to believe that we're free in doing it. Now, the whole of Christian theology depends upon the fact that he's not chosen to do that. He has given us genuine freedom and allowed us to make genuine decisions and choices. Um, And therefore, Christianity forswears that degree of manipulation and control, at least as it's best it does, in theory it does, uh, and you get St. Paul talking about how important it is not to manipulate um, in his evangelistic processes and his pastoral care, uh, and I think that then, that kind of philosophical point actually fleshes that out in, in the, the miracles that we hear of, like the wedding at Cana, The people didn't know. What was going on? The people who um, tasted the wine didn't know what had happened. So there's no manipulation or or thought control or hypnosis going on there. It's something that they noticed themselves without any of that going on. So I I think it's important to make a distinction between uh, a whole way of being really, which is manipulative, and Uh, a way of being which allows other people to be other people to be other to be who they choose to shape themselves to be
0: it also um sort of assumes that the point of um a religious experience is that i should have the experience so a religious experience is entirely contained in how i feel about it what effect it has on me whereas actually um it is again perfectly clear in the Gospels um, and in Christian practice that the point of a miracle is to enable you to um, to get closer to god and to um, and to believe and then to and then to share that belief and with others and and that can hap- that happens for some people through signs and wonders and miracles, but for an awful lot of people it doesn 't you don't need signs and wonders and miracles in order to believe in God, so the point is not how nice the experience is the experience is for me the point is. relationship with god
2: and also the kind of placarding pointing to that healed restored creation that god is working to bring about and and the miracles are the whole signs and pointers to that so you can see in this what that a bit of what that's going to look like when somebody is healed you see a little picture of the world finally put right
0: but equally, you can see a little picture of the world finally put right when um, no healings take place, when people in abject poverty are kind to each other. And um, uh, uh, and that is a religious experience just as much as um, the more what we call the miraculous ones.
1: As was the case with Jesus on the cross, because at that point he didn't come down. There was a scene at the end of Nikos Kazantzakis' um, book of the temptation of the last temptation christ. Of christ yeah um i think the book was called the, Temp- was oh, it was it? Okay. the, the temptation the temptation the film was called the last temptation anyway but there's a scene at the end where where it's it a slightly sort of fictional scene but you can kind of imagine it where um the the the, the sick and the disabled of of jerusalem pelts jesus with stones on the way to the cross because he hasn't healed them And um, it's kind of a way of saying that... And in a way, in the the miracles, actually, towards the end... Sorry, in the Gospels, towards the end of the story, the miracles seem to get less. Now, that isn't saying the miracles aren't significant. They are very significant as signs of the new creation, as you you said. But even at that moment, the moment of almost the greatest miracle of all, where God's Son dies, um, in some ways, it's it's the most natural event, but it's also the most supernatural of events because it, it brings the salvation of the world. Um... I The other point on this one, I, I suppose we slightly struggle with the, with the distinction between religious experience and non-religious experience, as if there are certain experiences which you can categorize as religious and other experiences which are non-religious. Because in the experience itself, how would you tell? Um, what is it that makes us think that a particular experience is religious? And it seems to me what determines that is not so much the quality of the experience, because that's a very subjective thing and very difficult to kind of describe or or to say what it is. It's actually the framework of thinking we give to it. In other words, you know, we have an experience in church or or, um, in a Christian context or, you know, maybe in nature or whatever. Uh, and we see it through a lens of Christian understanding, and we interpret that experience as an ex- an, inter- an, an experience of, of of God. In other words, we apply doctrine to it. Um, and if you like, that's what makes the relig- the, the experience r- religious. It's all about the interpretation, the framework. Now, back to our previous point, it seems to me someone like is taking an experience and bringing a set, a sort of set of assumptions to it and saying well this is what it is it's not really god at all because he's got this framework he's got this framework of thinking it says there is no god this is all manipulation this is how i can explain it and it seems to me what we as Christ- christians do is well we have this experience what's the best way of interpreting it you can ex- interpret it that way but actually i i i think it makes more sense to interpret it in this way that actually what i'm experiencing here is something of god himself and this is the God of Jesus Christ, the God, the God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, we bring our framework of, of, of interpretation to it, and we make sense of the experience by it. So it seems to me you can't get away from the question of doctrine and the relationship between doctrine and experience.
2: But there is also a kind of counterfeit experience, isn't there? You can have a kind of counterfeit religious experience and I take the qualification that you make about that phrase Um, so drugs for instance can give you an extraordinary exhilaration I'm told Uh, and 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 sense of oneness with everything or whatever Um, but it's obviously a manufactured one it's obviously an artificial one and by and large it tends to have a destructive effect upon your brain, and therefore isn't actually the real thing. So there are ways of manufacturing things that look like the real thing and aren't. Um, and I wonder whether that's what's going on a little bit with the trials between Moses and Aaron and the, the, magician, the magicians of Egypt. They're they, they able to do similar sorts of things uh, to mimic in some way what Moses and Aaron are doing. Um, but it's not got the same power or substance, and and I think there are forms of manufactured experience that that do not have the the goodness and the wholeness and the beneficial nature of of the real thing.
0: And if you've been hypnotised or presumably been on drugs or something, that experience stops. Um, it doesn't have the whole interpretive. Mm-hmm. Framework that is going to make it something that is possibly life-transforming, um, and uh, I mean, there, there's that um, fascinating story in Acts, isn't there, of the of the magician Simon, um, who sees the apostles doing something, um, which unfortunately Acts doesn't describe in detail, but it's obviously something really um, powerful and and extraordinary, and uh, and Simon wants to be able to do it, and he assumes that if he pays enough money. Um, they'll teach him how to do it and he can then start doing it. Um, and what he doesn't realise is that the, the apostles are bringing people into the fellowship of the body of Christ with whatever it is that they're, they're doing. They're not performing tricks. Um, uh, and, uh, and so the, um, a miracle is something that brings you closer to God. It isn't something that you just feel so if you have a, and and, there, and yes, as Mike says, there are false re- religious experiences and there is a whole way of seeking religious experience where the point of it is the experience, not the God that you're encountering.
2: Faithful service of God and, and fellow human beings in, in that more difficult, messy, less glamorous way. This is actually where real benefits is is to be found and given.
1: brings you to one of the other criteria that how do you evaluate experiences is what you know what is their result yes. what are they issue in and uh, again you know you can think of and think of a number of people who've had sort of supposedly religious experiences that have simply led to disillusionment or a kind of um you know, a sense of, of disappointment because it didn't carry on or whatever. And so much depends on the framework that, that, that we bring to it. And, and in a sense, what happens once the experience is gone? Um, because once the experience is gone, it is the, if you like the, the framework that you continue to live in that is the crucial thing. So that it enables you then to cope with the absence of the experience as well as the presence of it. And it seems to be like, you know, what we call religious experiences, places where we are very powerfully aware of what we would say is the presence of God, or speaking in tongues, or prophecies, or miracles, or whatever. Um, they are there if you like to help faith, to strengthen faith. But it's the faith that is the thing that matters, um, because the faith is the thing that persists, whether or not you know their experience is present or not. Um,
0: Teresa Ravala tells us that. Um and others bear witness to this that that sometimes when praying, she had the most extraordinary ecstatic experiences, and even was was seen to have levitated on one or two occasions when praying. But she was found that rather embarrassing, and quite irrelevant, and um, said uh, of her sisters that the the, the sisters who uh, in her convent who faithfully said their prayers every day were. Doing just as much for the kingdom as she was by levitating. Yes, <laughs> yes.
2: The tricks don't really no. do anything. No, interesting. No, but that's about it.
0: What yes. matters is the prayer. Yeah,
2: yeah. And I, there's that <clears throat> wonderful bit in the silver chair, isn't there? Where. Um, there's a kind of hypnosis going C. S. <S. on. C.S. Lewis's C.S. Lewis's yep. children's book, one of the Narnia stories, uh, and there's a kind of everybody is succumbing to the hypnotic words of of this person who's telling them that, you know, there's there's nothing, there's no uh, sky, there's no sun, they're all underground, and there's there's nothing up there, um, and they almost submits to it and believe it and i think it's puddle glum isn't it it? who who resists that and says well you may be right but i'm not going to believe it basically um because it's truer it's bigger it's better Uh, and and there is that important role of resisting brainwashing wherever it happens um that Society will, I mean, just collectively and un- unintentionally, but it will tell you something. Uh, and it's so important to remain critical, to question, to to resist brainwashing. And it happens in churches too. People it will tell you things that, well, okay, but ask questions about it. Don't give in to
1: well you know you, you religious people, you kind of lay on this whole thing on top of it. but actually really we all know it's just psychological techniques underneath. And, the, and that narrative is like a deceptive one because it, it, it implies that we all know that this is the real thing. it's just it's just psychology. that's all there is. Because there is no God, and because all there is is psychological processes, uh, what you're doing is laying this extra layer of interpretation on top. And I think I want to say, well, actually, no, it's not like that. It's not that you know we all know underneath it all that there is no God and there is it's just psychological processes. That is a that is a narrative. That is a set of beliefs. That is a sort of faith position, just as much as a Christian who says, "No, this experience is an experience of the living God. This is an experience of of God Himself making Himself known." to me that's how this is best to be interpreted
0: so now i see why there is a connection between our discussion of, about people of faith and our discussion about hypnotism
1: you see there is a point <laughs> or, or either that or we've only got one <laughs> good point to make we <laughs> split it out over two questions well we got there in the end <laughs>
2: there was a kind of rationale to this one
1: anyway um thank you very much for all the questions that you um uh, you send in we were only able to handle two today we um I uh, can't promise to answer all the questions that come in, but please do send more in in time if you're listening to this, because, um, well, we enjoy the chance to nutter away about these fascinating things that come in. So that uh, is the end of another Godpod, and uh, we will be back again before too long, creeping ever nearer to one number 100. So it's goodbye from me, Graham. And from me, Michael.
0: <laughs> and from me, Jane. That was Godpod. A podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.